as a little lamb to the shepherd boy. Do you hear what I... I really am a mean and despicable creature at heart, you know. You may wish to adjust the dial. You are currently tuned into... The Wrong Station. was called Trois Corbys, and you won't find it on a map. It must have been incorporated into some other parish since then, but I couldn't even tell you whether it was in England or Scotland, Northumberland or Cumbria. Maybe things have changed now with the internet, but when I was there, I don't think people even cared. They were in Trois Corbys. They'd always been in Trois Corbys. It was the day before Christmas Eve, 1976. Unable to afford the flight back to Canada, I was using my holiday to drive north and visit my great-grandmother, who was moldering in a Dumfries retirement facility called Sail Away. Every time I think about it, the Enya song plays in my head. Sail away, sail away, sail away. Even though the single wouldn't be released for another 12 years. <clears throat> but I wasn't going to be able to make it to her that night. Lost in the hills after dark, I'd only just managed to get the steaming wreckage of my car down to the edge of town. Trois Corbys. Population... what? Seventy? If that? It was a cluster of low stone houses huddled down against the winds that howled from the uplands. A crumbling macadam road slouched through it, winding under the bulk of billion-year-old hills. At the town's single intersection, a single orange street light flickered in the wind. It wasn't quite snowing, but the wind carried a cold grit that stung the cheeks. One building in the town had lights on. It seemed to be a pub-slash-in called, of all things, the Trois Corbys, which is to say, the Two Crows, in local dialect. Black paint flaked from the Two Crows painted underneath the name, and above the entrance, which was half-sunk in the ground. He had to climb down four steps to get to it, and the door only stood about five feet high. When I ducked inside, the whole place turned to look at me. A half-dozen men, at various tables or by the bar. They all looked the same, wind-leathered and dressed in grimy, thick tweed jackets and caps. They all could have been related. The faces in the town all had the same narrow, distrustful build. I didn't like the look of them, and at the time I wasn't sure why. Now, years later, I think I've learned enough about myself to understand. I think the reason for my instinctive dislike is that the people of Trois Corbys all had faces that reminded me of one I'd grown up hating. My father's face, which was also the one I saw each time I looked in the mirror. I nodded to the barflies and grunted. They turned aside back to their muttered conversations or muted thoughts. But as I walked past and pulled up a dismal stool at the bar, I could feel their suspicion. I could feel the occasional flick of their dark eyes toward me. The barman clumped a mug of flat brown ale down in front of me. 
He did it without asking. I supposed it was the only thing they served. If he noticed any resemblance between us, he didn't comment on it. Maybe he had only ever seen people from Trois Corbys. Maybe he assumed this was just what people looked like. Sir he said. Uh-huh, I said. Still beats Winnipeg. He had no response to that. Maybe he didn't know what Winnipeg was. Maybe he found my accent as hard as I found his. I'm not doing it justice. I've heard that, during the war, certain British airmen from the north were able to limp through conversation with the locals when they were stationed in Iceland. I believe it. Every time one of us said something, the other would have to get them to repeat it two or three times. Where from, then? He said. London? I laughed at that. People in London treated my accent like a bizarre curiosity. No, Canada, I said. He nodded, as though that finally told him everything he needed to know about me. Just outside London, then. Cab broke down? I nodded. He nodded. It was an easier way to understand each other than speaking. The only reason outside has come to try. He jerked his chin at a man in the corner. You will fix it in the morning. You can stay upstairs tonight. But it's a silly weed to bring you here on Tips Eve. I grunted. I had no idea what the last part meant, uh, but I pretended I did. Now I do know what it meant. Sort of. What he meant was, it was a strange fate that brought me there on the evening of Old Tup. As I sat there, drinking my beer and wishing somebody had invented smartphones so I'd have something to look at, a sound started to ring against the sidewalk outside. A hollow, wooden noise. Silently, as one, the men in the bar turned in their seats to look at the door. To, to, to. Whatever was making that noise was coming down the stairs. The wind was howling outside. The door creaked open halfway, and then the wind caught it, slamming it back against the wall. A figure stood, framed in the door, backlit by the orange flicker of that one streetlight. It was about half the height of a man. Its head was lopsided, carved from wood with jaws that clacked in the silence of the corby. Ram's horns curled from above its beady little eyes, and a gray old fleece hung over its back. It was supported by a wooden limb and two human legs. I realized that it was a man in costume, bent over double, using a short wooden staff to support the front of his body. An appreciative noise went up from the men in the room, it's up, they said. It's triple, right? More figures crowded into the door. There was a man dressed as a butcher, a man dressed as a female prostitute, and a little boy holding a wooden bowl who was dressed like a devil. In the midst of them, the tallest figure stood with his hand on the back of Tup's neck. He was dressed all in black, with his face painted black, and a pair of horns rising from the side of his head. Across the top half of his face... He wore a wooden mask that had been carved and painted to resemble the blue-green compound eyes of a fly. Might we come up in? He said. Ah, let him in, let him in, cried some of the men in the bar. But others said, Nah, 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 that's Beelzebub, let him not come up in. The words sounded scripted to me, or else memorized by rote, set down by long tradition. I might have expected some joy or laughter at the ritual, but there was none. The men in the inn cried out their lines with the same leathery indifference that they did everything else. Silence fell, and all the eyes turned to the barkeep. 
Aye, he said at last. Ah, now, come up in, Beelzebub. Come up in, Butcher. Come up in, Tibbs and Little Devil Doubt. Come up in, old Tup. The people at the door crowded in. I tried to meet the barkeep's eye with a questioning glance, but he pretended not to notice. Tup remained in the door as the others filed past him. The man in women's clothes came to stand closest to me, his face a garishly painted caricature of my own. I had trans friends in the city, though at the time we used worse terms. I wondered if I should be offended on their behalf, and didn't even come close to an answer. A silence fell. Tup's wooden leg lifted off the ground and moved forward, over the threshold. Tup. The back legs hopped over, and the pantomime ram moved into the center of the room. Tup. 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 By some invisible signal, everybody started singing. As I went down to Tricobis, all over market day, I met the biggest ram my boys had ever fed on hay. The horns that grew on this ram's head, they grew so very long, and every time he shook his head, they rattled against the sun. Now this old ram, he had a tail, it reached right down to hell, and every time he waggled it, he rung the old church bell. As the men sang, the little boy, little devil doubt, as they called him, scurried around the room with his wooden bowl. Every person he visited threw a couple of coins into it, and when he came to me, I noticed they were all old currency, shillings, florins, and half-crowns. All I had were new five and ten cent pieces, which, when I threw them into the bowl, the boy looked at, shook his head, and then gave back. The song went on. The butcher that stuck this ram, my lads, was up to knees in blood, and the little boy who held the bowl was carried away by the flood. Took all the boys and cobies to carry away his bones. Took all the girls and cobies to roll away his stones. The butcher that stuck this ram, my lads, was up to knees in blood, and the little boy who held the bowl was carried away by the flood. As the singing came to an end, a moment of silence fell. And then, the ram burst into motion. Kicking and leaping, old Tup began to run around the room, crashing into people and knocking over chairs and tables. Hey, Tup! cried the men. Back then, back then, Tup! as the figure ran at them. But they didn't seem to feel any actual panic. Again, their reaction was formalized, set down in stone centuries before their births. I hadn't been expecting the ram to jump at me, a stranger. But when it did, I yelled and jumped around the corner of the bar. The puppet's jaws clacked shut on my hand, stinging and leaving a bruise that took several days to heal. But then it leaped on, jumping past Beelzebub and Tibbs to terrorize the other guests. Hey, Tup! shouted a voice. Silence fell again. It was the butcher. Old Tup turned to face him, and all the other men in the room slowly moved back into a circle to watch what happened next. The pantomime ram charged toward the butcher, made a show of jumping to the sides. The ram crashed into the bar, a display of slapstick that nobody laughed or even smiled at. Then the butcher chased Tup down to the other end of the room, and Tup chased the butcher back up to the bar, crashing into it again. The entire spectacle was ridiculous. In any other context, it would have been funny, but... The bored, solemn faces of the townsfolk took any joy out of it. I felt the hair rising on the back of my neck. The butcher pulled out his butcher's knife, 
and chased Old Top back up the room. Aye, murmured the men. Aye, butcher, tis time and all. This time the butcher caught Tup and held him in a headlock. The two engaged in a ritualized struggle back and forth. And then something unexpected happened. The butcher reached back and plunged the knife into Tup's hindquarters, where the anus would have been under the fleece. This, at last, raised an appreciative chuckle from the audience, and Tup lurched back and forth, pantomiming the death throes of the ram. I wasn't sure how they'd done it. A prop knife and squib? The butcher's arm turned crimson as he sawed back and forth, and a real smell of raw meat and fecal matter filled the air. But it had to be staged, because the man in the ram's costume made no noise, and continued to act his part. There were sheep pens beside the bar. Corby's was the type of town where a bag of bloody sheep chitterings was easily come by, and there was room enough to hide them under Tup's ratty skin. I found myself staring into the beady eyes of the ram mask, and because of the context my brain conjured a pareidolia and thought it recognized panic and fear in those empty pellets of black glass. But what did the real eyes that human eyes look like underneath that wooden mask? Were they laughing at the farce? But no, they couldn't have been. Even staged, it must have been humiliating and uncomfortable to play old Tup. I wanted to look aside, but found it impossible to rip my gaze away. I felt lightheaded, but seemed to be the only one. Even Little Devil Doubt seemed unaffected by the spectacle, as he ran up to fill his bowl with spraying blood and offal, until the coins floated. At last, lifting a theatrical arm, the pantomime ram rolled over and lay still. The other four players squelched through the blood until they formed a line, and bowed. A round of polite applause rose from the townsfolk, who then turned back to their ale, their muttered conversations, and muted thoughts. Without another word, Tibbs, the Butcher, Beelzebub, and Little Devil Doubt processed out the door, leaving Old Tup crumpled where he lay. I turned back to my drink, unsure of what I had just seen. That smell still filled the room. It was unthinkable. Aye, said the barkeep. Ter silly weed we brought you here on Tips Eve. I nodded, draining the last of my ale. He refilled my mug and refused to accept money. Nah, you're a guest here now, he said. I nodded and drank. That, uh, play, I said. What did it represent? He frowned at me and tilted his head. I repeated the question, but it seemed he'd understood my words, but not their meaning. Present, he said. Nah, London, it represent no. Tis just only the old trip. I wasn't able to get a more sensible answer out of him after that. Later on, drunk and feeling surreal, I headed out the door to get my things from the car. Old Tup was uh, still laying there, where the players had left him. A real method actor, I murmured to myself. But when I nudged the mask with my foot, it lulled away, revealing a man's face. His eyes were wide and staring. His skin had gone pale. Undoubtedly, he was dead. Like his killer, he looked like everyone else in the village. He looked like me. I didn't glance under the ragged red back of the fleece. It had been a real knife. I didn't want to see what it had done. 
Oh, worry not about that, called the barkeep. You'll clean it up in the morning. I nodded. I grunted. When I got outside, I scrubbed most of the blood from my shoes by scuffing them in the gravel. I looked around. Beyond the pool of orange light, the howling darkness of the hill country spread in all directions. What else can I have done? There was nowhere to go. I got my things. I stayed the night. In the morning, Hugh fixed up my car and I drove to Dumfries. When I phoned the police, the man on the other end of the line listened politely, asked if I'd been drinking the night before, and suggested I'd been mistaken. I became agitated and he calmed me down, saying he'd call it in. Whatever that meant. What else could I have done? There was nowhere to go. I made my visit. I sailed into Sailaway Retirement Community, where an old woman with my face kept saying how nice it was that I had come to visit, but that I should go because her grandson was coming up for Christmas Eve. I drove back south and finished out my contract. I moved back home. There's one more thing, though, that sticks out in my memory about that trip. It happened as I was putting on my coat at Sail Away and the sun was going down. My grandmother was sundowning. She started humming to herself as old folks will, some tune probably from her vanished, half-forgotten early years. And as she hummed, it came to me that I knew the words to this tune and sang it to myself on the way down the gravel path to the car. As I went down to Trois Corbys, all of a market day, I met the biggest ram my boys that ever fed on hay. The butcher that stuck this ram, my lads, was up to knees in blood, and the little boy who held the bowl was carried away by the flood. It was Trois Corbys. It had always been Trois Corbys. The Rolling Station is made possible by the generous support of our listeners on Patreon. Consider visiting today at patreon.com slash Station. You can also support us by leaving a rating and review on iTunes, wherever it is you listen to The Rolling Station. This week's episode, Old Tup, was written by Alexander Saxton and performed by Anthony Patillo. The Rolling Station is co-produced by Alexander Saxton, Anthony Patillo and Jacob Duarte Spiel, with music composed and performed by Alone Zetrin and arranged for the viola and performed by Viola Schmidt. You can subscribe to The Wrong Station on iTunes, Google Play Music, Spotify, and any other of your favorite podcast services. You can follow The Wrong Station on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and email us at thewrongstation at gmail.com. And until next time... A merry tup's eve to all, and to all a tup's night. <laughs>